seat. And we are in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. As we move towards the text, it's worth remembering as a, as a starting point for us today, why God blessed Abraham, the first Jew, the father of the Jewish nation. God blessed Abraham, Abram was his name, and they changed it to Abraham. He inserts the the breath of God into his name, literally. Where it wasn't there, now it's there, and he's been regenerated, as it were. And, and so Abraham is, a ble- is blessed so that he can be a blessing to others. He's not blessed to hoard. He's blessed to be a conduit of blessing. God blessed the one so that the blessing might increase through him to others. And rest assured, anytime God blesses someone, that's meant to pass through them and into the lives of other people. So when we come to the new covenant, that's precisely what we see with the gospel. The most blessed truth that anyone could ever embrace. When we we receive it, we were meant to pass it on, to pass on what we've received, to let it flow through us into the lives of other people so that others might be blessed as well. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go to the text this morning, because you can see the word blessed a lot in the Beatitudes. And to this point, Jesus had spent a good bit of time establishing who he is, and he's handpicked the men he wants to be his disciples. He's called these disciples to be fishers of men, and he's taught them about grace and, and that God's acceptance of the believer is always based on grace. It's never based on merit. It's never based on our effort. And now he's presenting what we call the Sermon on the Mount to his committed followers. Now, you're going to see in the text, there's a very large group of people present, but you really need to think about this as a sermon to the 12. And there are just a bunch of other people listening in. Because Jesus is really focused on his disciples at this moment. John Stott said that the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teachings of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood. And certainly it is the least obeyed. It's the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. So as we read these passages, I want you to constantly be asking yourself this morning this question, what is the purpose of this sermon? What is the purpose of what Jesus is imparting to his disciples? Because if you're a disciple, you need to wrestle with that. It's important that we wrestle with this question of Jesus's intent for us. The Sermon on the Mount is for us. You understand that, right? It's for us. It's for right now. Therefore, we should take great delight in studying one of the most profound teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should seek to live our lives in obedient gratitude that we've been made worthy inhabitants of the kingdom of God by his grace. We need to continually remind ourselves that the one who gave us his grace to receive forgiveness and acceptance and salvation will also provide his grace to help us become godly citizens of the kingdom now. We need to, we need to be being sanctified now, and then when we're with Jesus, we'll be glorified in his presence. Can't wait for that. So in our Harmony of the Gospels, uh, we're in section 63, and this section has Mark 3 and Luke 6. So let me just read these passages for you. Mark 3, 13 to 19. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. 
And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, and then here's the list. Simon, who, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he gave the name Boandrus, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here's Luke's account, Luke 6, 12 to 16. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Again, the list. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So here's what we've got here. You've got these disciples also being called now apostles, and that word apostolos in the Greek, it just means one who is sent. They've been recognized, they're being sent out, and specifically sent with a message sent in the authority of the one who sent them. These are ambassadors. They're ambassadors of the kingdom. And they go with the, 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 uh, the backing of Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to differentiate this more because in American evangelicalism, we get really tripped up on apostles and, and uh, prophets and apostolic gifts and prophetic gifts. So I make a delineation really quickly. In your mind... Um, Capital A, apostle, is a person that Jesus appointed in this text. There are not any more apostles, capital A, apostles. There were 12. One of them betrayed Jesus. They all have died and they all have gone to heaven. Those are apostles. Now, there are apostolic gifts in the church. And apostolic really just has to do with starting new works. Church planting is an apostolic gift things like that, starting new ministries. So there are apostolic gifts. There are not apostles today, okay? Same with prophets and prophetic gifts. In the church, God gives gifts. Prophetic gifts have to do with telling the truth, making the truth known, okay? And those gifts are, are in the church today. But prophets, capital P prophets, there are none in the world. That ceased. Can you imagine how confusing it would be for some capital P prophet to stand up and say something that's not in the word of God or that contradicts the word of God. But Jesus, Jesus is not the author of confusion. So that's all done. The gifts continue in the church. The offices are closed. Okay? So just keep that in mind as we go through this text. And then, as, you know, the part of the list there at the end, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I've heard people say that Judas could not have repented. He could not have returned to the grace of God. I don't believe that. God's exhaustive foreknowledge of all things does not necessitate that God ordained or directly caused all things whatsoever come to pass. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a way of committing what's called the genetic fallacy. It doesn't follow that just because God knows all things that God determines all things. That's not, that doesn't follow. Okay, 
The burden is on the person who makes the claim to demonstrate it clearly from the text of Scripture. And when it comes to Judas, it was his pride that got in the way. The reason um, that people don't or, or can't receive the love and grace and forgiveness of God is ultimately their own pride. And that's what happened with Judas. It was his own pride. So, so here's Jesus. He's praying all night long. He's in communion with the Father. He's asking for clarity and wisdom regarding whom he should appoint as apostles. And as an immediate point of application, you don't have to wait till the end of the sermon. I'll give it to you right now. You and I ought to be stopping more frequently to pray about decisions. If Jesus stopped to pray all night about a decision, we should pray about decisions that we need to make. And, and so, if, you know, this is, this is such a great example for us. We need to embrace that. So we, so we go back to the text here, in section 64 of the Harmony of the Gospels. And so there's a little snippet here in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now Luke's gospel, remember Luke's a physician. He's a little more detailed than the other writers. And Luke says in Luke 6, 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from along the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. And they had all come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him and healed them all. So this teaching is primarily for the disciples. It's primarily for this new group of appointed apostolos, apostles, okay? But there's this large crowd that's tagging along and they've gathered here too and they're gonna hear this as well. We're told it's a great multitude and spirits are being cast out and infirmities and diseases are healed. And so here he begins to teach his disciples. So Matthew 5, you guys are going to recognize this passage. You're probably very familiar with it. Matthew 5, 3 to 12. We call these the Beatitudes. <coughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now here's Luke's account. Luke 6, 20 to 26. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who is hungry now, you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to, to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. You've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full and filled up now. You, you shall be hungry. 
Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So we've got to remember here, Matthew, remember because of his job as a civil servant, was skilled in shorthand. So this account of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel was most likely transcribed verbatim in the moment. He could have just taken it down. But, but even if that were not the case, though I think there's a strong case to be made for it, we can rest in John 14, 26. John 14, 26 says, this is Jesus speaking, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the parakletos in Greek, he's going um, whom to, the, whom the Father's going to send in my name, he's going to teach you all things, and listen to this, here's what the Holy Spirit does for the, for the apostles, he's going to bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, so if you believe in Jesus, then by his own testimony, you should have no problem accepting the accuracy of what is recorded in the Gospels. If you don't believe in Jesus, you've got much bigger problems than textual criticism, okay? So now now the word beatitude is not found in the text of your Bible. It's a word that simply means blessing, and it comes from the Latin for blessed. Note that these verses deal with attitudes. It's be in this attitude, right? This is, this is what, what we think in our hearts, our outlook on life. Beatitudes are the attitudes that ought to be in our lives if we're truly Christians. And there's a progression in Christ's teaching in Matthew and in the other gospels leading up to this point. And this sermon is part of a developing set of ideas that Jesus is presenting to his disciples as Christ's early emphasis was regarding instruction about who he was, His teaching emphasized grace, the grace that we receive at salvation and the grace in which we stand, according to Romans 5.2. Christ has communicated clearly in word and in deed that God's acceptance of us is always based on what he has done, never on what we do. So having established this foundation of grace, Christ presents the Sermon on the Mount to his committed followers in order to explain the kind of life that is pleasing to him. And, and the attitudes and behaviors that he expects from his followers who represent him. And the disciples were able to receive this instruction because they understood, at least at a basic level, the meaning of grace. Because they knew Jesus loved them and accepted them. And they were not overwhelmed by these high standards presented in the sermon. The Beatitudes, which, which introduced the sermon, which we won't get through the whole thing today because it's really long, that they're the first of Christ's injunctions to his followers, requirements for life in the kingdom. In other words, Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to be, uh, if you want to be part of my kingdom and, and reap the benefits and the rewards, you should live like this. Okay? So, so as we get into the text, just remember that the Beatitudes are the heart attitudes that God desires for us. They reflect the attitude of God himself. And once we realize that the sermon establishes godly standards for us to follow uh, as followers of Christ and our relationships are based on grace, not on performance, then we're able to see uh, the Old Testament law from a proper perspective. Because the law is not the standard we meet to be accepted by God. It's simply a guide that tells, along with the Sermon on the Mount, what a a godly life looks like, okay? So, So let's get to the Beatitudes here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, why would the poor in spirit be blessed? Well, because acknowledging and knowing your own spiritual poverty is essential to being, uh, 
to being forgiven by Jesus and receiving the wholeness that he wants to give us in knowing him. We have to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. It is the starting point of this whole progression. We can't go on to number two unless we've, unless we've embraced number one. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the beauty of what Jesus is saying in this beatitude is that those who have put their faith in Jesus so as to be saved will ultimately receive wholeness where now there is brokenness. We will receive wholeness, not just in our spirit, not just in our emotions, not just in our minds, in our bodies. I can't wait. I can't wait. We're going to be, have, we're going to have new bodies that never age. Oh, man, can't wait. We're going to receive, they'll receive healing where they're, where they're, hearts are now sick with grief. And the tragedy of those who don't return in repentance and faith is that they enter into a Christless eternity. They never receive in themselves wholeness and healing, not from Jesus and not in the eternal sense. They only ever carry those sorrows and griefs with them forever and ever and ever into eternal agony. And ever since sin broke God's perfect world, sadness pervades our existence. And, and though there are times when we rejoice, we also experience times of deep mourning and even grieving. And Jesus is telling us that that's not all bad. That's not all bad. Those who never grieve do not need, nor do they receive his comfort. There's a blessing in receiving his comfort. So until we enter the fullness of the kingdom, we grieve and mourn. The tragedies of life will at times weigh heavy on our hearts, but in our grief, we have hope for the future because of Jesus. And I believe this is one of the main reasons that God has given the Holy Spirit, the comforter who meets us in our sorrows and calms our hearts. And, well, how, how does God comf comfort our hearts? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort others who are in affliction with the same comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. It's never meant to stop with you and me. It's meant to flow through us to others. Paul, again, to the, to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, may it be soon, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died physically. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, we're going to be caught up, harpazoed, raptured in the Latin. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these things. Man, does God answer all our nagging questions in the midst of trials and experience? No. No, he doesn't. But he gives us passages like this that we hang our hope on. We have hope. Think about Job. Did God answer Job's questions? No. But he showed up. And that's enough. That's enough. So blessed are, the next Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness is being slow to speak, slow to anger. It's a reticence to judge others harshly because you're aware of how much you've been forgiven. 
We're told that the meek are going to inherit the earth. What, 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 is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be meek? So we, we erroneously jump to weakness when we think about, and, and I get it, they rhyme. It's meek and weak, okay? But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Meekness is humility, yes, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more. Meekness is actually strength in check, under control. It's strength under control. A gentle, quiet strength that is not flaunted. Think about how strong Jesus was in his person, emotionally, spiritually, what he dealt with, what he took upon himself before he ever got to the cross, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Any one of us with access to that power would have long ago eliminated anybody who, did the, who had done those things to us. We would have wiped them out. That's meekness on his part. It's, it's, it's power under control. Just think of the example, like go to John's gospel this week and, and read through the account of the arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus knocks the guards over with a word. He could have spoken and their bodies just flown apart into atoms. He's the God who made everything. And all of that was restrained in his person. He didn't do that because he, it's not because he couldn't, but because he, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't what the moment called for. It's meek. He was under control. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. See, there are a lot of hungry people in the church today. They stay hungry because they chase the wrong things. I've known many of these people personally, especially back in the campus ministry days. Um, a lot of people who spend their time and resources on going to this revival or that church or that has a, a powerful anointing over here until it doesn't, until it's not. As if this is moving the spirit over here until it's not. And it's always moving and it's always going somewhere else. And they'll drive or fly all over North America to these outpourings and then on to the next one, week after week, year after year. And, and I've known people like this personally talk to them. It's the same story. It's never enough. It's never enough. None, none of them are ever filled up. None are ever satisfied by the experience that they have at these outpourings. And, and the pursuit never ends. And for people who are seeking, they're seeking God for what he can do not for who he is. See, that's the problem. If we're seeking God for what he can do instead of who he is, we're, we're going to continue to be hungry. We're never going to be satisfied. The pursuit will never end. See, instead, the call is to seek the core attributes of God, namely his righteousness. And we're told to hunger and thirst, that, that, that relates to our sustenance. We're hunger and thirst for who God is, not what he can do for us. God's character is what satisfies our deepest longing. And that leads us to the next beatitude, which is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, some of you remember the original Newsboys song. I say the original because then the band broke up and then they got back. It was, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible episode. Um, I'm being facetious. Um, blessed are the merciful, right? Um, and, and the Newsboys song was, do you remember Real Good Thing? When we don't get what we deserve, it's a real good thing. When we get what we don't deserve, it's a real good thing. Do I need to sing it for you? Do I need to dance while I sing? No, for the sake of, for the sake of your eyes, I will not do 
that. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Is not getting what we deserve. His unmerited favor, favor is something we don't deserve. Mercy means we don't get God's punishment and wrath for our sin. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, his unmerited favor upon us. So mercy and grace, we're going to make that delineation. And, and the application point is inherent to receiving it. See, when you get mercy and grace, it's got to pass on to others or, or it, it, it withers up in you. Right? We've got to pass it on to others. Failure to give mercy after having received mercy, especially from the Lord, is a trigger for his discipline. Or think of it like this. The Lord's discipline is actually a mercy itself, and his discipline and his mercy are not at odds with each other. His fatherly discipline is great. It's a, it's a great, great mercy, actually, if we'll receive it, because he loves us enough to correct us and not let us continue doing sinful things. He's such a good God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, we live in a culture of smut. Most of what we consume in the name of entertainment is at the very least pagan. Most of it is anti-Christian. And yet many of us continue to consume a steady diet. You need to understand that what you take in through the windows of your soul, what you take into yourself impacts who you are. It shapes your mind how difficult it is to maintain purity of heart in such a debauched culture as ours. But that is, in fact, the call of God on each of us who calls ourselves Christian. We're, we're to be pure in heart because that's the only way we can see God. So listen, I just want to give you a section of Psalm 119. Uh, it's the longest psalm in the Bible. Uh, I'm just going to give you verses 9 to 16. But listen to what David says about this being pure in heart. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. But just take note of all the action verbs in those eight verses. Guarding your path, seeking God, not wandering away, but storing up the word. He said he desires to be taught. He declares God's rules and he delights in God's testimonies. David said we need to be meditating on God's precepts and fixing our eyes on him, delighting in his statutes and remembering his word. And as we do that, we begin to see his working everywhere. Our eyes begin to open to what God's doing all around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And now you find that the Spirit won't allow you to do the things that you used to do and the sins that you used to commit. It can't continue unresolved, especially among your brothers and sisters in Christ. Suddenly there's a there's this thing rising up in you called ethics and the ethics of the kingdom and, and there's a check in your spirit about things. You find yourself looking for peaceful resolutions in relationships because the spirit who lives in you won't let you hold a grudge. Dang it. Used to be my favorite thing to do. How dare any blood-bought child of God hold a grudge against another when he or she has been bought by the precious blood of the lamb? 
You've got nothing to hold against anybody. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. Live peaceably with all. He doesn't say, wait around and stew in your indignation until they come groveling to you. He said, as much as it depends on you. Peacemaker is a word used to describe someone who actively proclaims God's word to reconcile the listener with the Lord. Peacemaking entails taking some action to unite parties that had once been at odds. And and that's what we're called to do as we proclaim the gospel. See, the gospel is a peacemaking effort between sinners and a holy God. We're supposed to be peacemakers, both in the church, in our lives, in our families, in our communities, but also with the gospel. We're seeking to reconcile and make peace between people and God. Paul, Paul writes to the Colossian church in chapter one. He says, for in him, in God, uh, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It's about reconciliation. And we come to the end of the Beatitudes with this last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this ends with a blessing. The blessing, you ready for this? The blessing of persecution. (laughs) How does that work? The blessing of persecution. It seems like a really strange way to put it, but this is the reality. There is a reward that is not available to anyone other than those who've experienced persecution for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Some of you are sitting there going, I don't really think I need that one. I don't need that reward. I'm okay without that. No, no. It's going to happen at some point. The longer we're here on this planet, the darker things get, the more we'll experience it. And so don't miss the qualifier here. He says, for righteousness sake. If you're all about puffing up and being a jerk for Jesus and you come under persecution, you don't get a blessing for being a jerk for Jesus. But if you're loving people and you're sharing the gospel and you're trying to minister to people and they reject you or they hate you, that's a, that, there's a blessing there for us. Uh, t- 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If your desire is to live a godly life in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ, you're going to receive some form of persecution. And in all these Beatitudes, Listen, you don't have to be rich or strong or crazy smart or powerful because it's an upside down kingdom where obedience is better than sacrifice. Seems like I saw a t-shirt that had that on it. I don't know. It's an upside down kingdom. A broken and contrite heart is better than power. Faith is greater than the security uh, and our illusion of safety in this world. We look for autonomy, but Jesus calls us to obedience. We want power, and Jesus tells us to develop a contrite 
heart. We desperately want safety, but our Lord never promised such a thing in this life. And instead he calls us to walk in faith. And all of this is just a direct contradiction to our culture and to every other culture on the planet. There is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to death. And so Matthew, here in, in, the, in section 66, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, it um, continues on. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And we all know what salt is because we put too much of it in our food, right? We should be able to relate to this. But in the culture of Jesus, did you know salt was used as a preservative? They didn't have refrigerators. Oh. Right? So salt speaks of the inward character. It, pre it, it, it preserves food from corruption. It enhances savor. And our task is to keep our lives pure so that we might be seasoned with salt. So we're supposed to uh, preserve things, especially relationships, and, and to, be, to be savory. Let your, let your words be seasoned with salt, right? To, 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 to interact with people in that way. And, and as salt in the world, our presence here with the Holy Spirit living in us holds back corruption. Did you know that? so that the gospel can go forth in the world. It's one of the reasons I believe that the rapture of the church is the, is the big thing that, that ushers in the seven years of Daniel's 70th week, the, what we call the tribulation period, because then suddenly the church, the salt is gone. There's nothing with, with holding, holding back that corruption in the earth. The Holy Spirit, as he indwells the church, is gone at that point. And, and, and so... Um, I read, I read 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8, and Paul says, you, you know what's restraining that spirit of lawlessness, the Antichrist. You know it's restraining him, um, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it, which I believe is the church, will continue to do so until it's taken out of the way. And then that's when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So um, we'll, we'll talk some more about eschatology in the days ahead, if, if there are days ahead, which would be cool, because then we can talk about eschatology on the back end of eschatology and be like, hey, you remember when that thing happened? Um, and, and so we just wrap up the passage here, uh, still, in, still in Matthew uh, 5, uh, verse 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. They put it up on a stand so it gives light to the whole house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they would see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. So light helps us to see what's clearly around us. By it, we also see ourselves clearly. John 1, 4 and 5, in him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light by which we see. Light also speaks of the outward testimony of good works in our lives that point to God. Our good works have to accompany our salvation, not that we earn anything, which is impossible, but it's a testimony of the change that Jesus brings in our lives. And that's how we let our light shine. So the physical world is a dark place with little to no light of its own, since an external source of light is needed to illuminate it. You see that picture? Like we need the sun to illuminate our, our reality. But the same is true spiritually. We have no light of our own, and Jesus Christ is the source of 
all light. He's the sun, S-O-N. And he illuminates everything for us, our hearts, our minds, and the path he calls us to walk on. And so uh, let's, let's wrap this up this morning here. I, I've got Matthew 5, 17 to 20, and we'll, we'll move to close. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, you ready for this? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What, really? How do we even begin to compete with the Pharisees? No, that was self-righteousness. See, Jesus gives you his righteousness when you put your faith in him. But what a blow to the Jews and the religious leaders. Jesus knew the extremes of the professional law keepers and what kind of things they resorted to. And you're just thinking, what's going to become of them? This is the key point of the passage. You can't break the commandments and get away with it, but you can't keep them in your own strength. <laughs> and the only thing you, you, can, you can try to keep them, you need to come to Jesus for salvation because then he, he fills you with his spirit and his power and his strength. But these commandments, both the Old Testament law and the Beatitudes, are not a means of salvation. They are meant to drive us to the cross where we accept the finished work of Jesus. But there's no way that we could do any of these things in our own power. See, the law is still God's holy standard. In it, he reveals to us that we cannot measure up to his standard, which is what drives us to Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled the law by becoming our sacrifice. He shed his own sinless blood on our behalf. He offered himself once for all for the sins of mankind. And the sin debt of humanity is settled at Jesus' death on the cross when he uttered the last words, it is finished. So suffice it to say, our Lord, our, our God does not look at things the way that we look at things. He doesn't see things the way we see things. He's concerned about holiness. He's concerned about righteousness. And he knows that we cannot attain these things in and of ourselves. So he's provided them by grace through faith. And when we embrace that offer and receive his mercy and grace, not only are we saved from our sins, we're made new creations, and we become his representatives on the earth. We are Jesus's ambassadors. I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about, in fact, we're going to unpack that really quickly as we wrap up this morning. Only children of God can bring the peace and knowledge of God to others. We're taking a message from the king to other people. We are ambassadors. Do you see that? Okay. Buddhists can't do that. Taoists can't do that. Muslims can't do that. Only born-again Christians can take the message of the king to those who don't have it. See, a person has to have a real relationship with the living God through Jesus before he or she can help someone else know God. And those who witness for Christ, we share our faith with our friends, we serve others in the name of Christ, we become ambassadors for peace. And that's what this verse identifies. Because God, God is at war with man. All the way back when we started the Gospels and we read the Christmas stuff, 
right? And we talked about all the Christmas songs and man at war with God, man at war with man. Here's not the love song that he brings. It's, it's not man at war with man. It's man at war with God. We don't want his sovereignty and his power and his leadership over us. We want to be autonomous. And so here we become, he's taking the, the rioting villagers who are trying to overthrow him and, and turn them into ambassadors. We become ambassadors for him. And so an ambassador is an official envoy, especially a high-ranking diplomat who represents a state or a kingdom. Their own ruler or sovereign appoints them for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment. So an ambassador is a government representative stationed in a foreign capital or in a foreign country. And so here's, I want you to think of it like this. So the church building, wherever it is, and, and we, we kind of have a church building, but not really, um, it kind of becomes like an embassy where people can come and, and, uh, and hear about this other place, this other kingdom. And the things they do while on foreign soil would include carefully using mission resources to inform the populace about why they're there. They'd be working with uh, serving the homeland's uh, interests. They'd be serving the population in which they find themselves with high ethics and excellence as an ambassador. And I just want to remind us this morning, as we read the Beatitudes, what we're seeing is really we've been given an ambassadorship. We've been called to be ambassadors. We're ambassadors of King Jesus. And while we're stationed here on the big blue ball, we, we need to embrace all that this calling entails. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount, this is why Jesus' detailed description of what it looks like to be his ambassadors. He's telling us that's, that's our job. That's our job. With time running out, I simply want to add a few more items to our job description. Ambassadors are not of the land that they live in currently. And we are in this world, but we're not of it, Scripture says. So, okay, that one fits. Ambassadors represent the king or the ruler of the land that sent them. And we represent the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Ambassadors can be called home. They can be recalled. Sometimes they retire. At other times, they can be recalled for personal misconduct. In fact, Paul even admonishes the church in Corinth about this. He says, some of you have died because of your misconduct regarding the Lord's Supper. Ambassadors can, can be recalled, but pay attention to this one. A sovereign over a nation might recall ambassadors if there's an imminent threat of war. If there's an imminent threat of war. And what I want to say to you this morning as we close, men and women, is there's an imminent threat of war at this very moment. And it grows with each passing hour. Not just a war between the nations of the earth, but the war with Satan, whereby all of Jesus' ambassadors at some point are recalled. The Father's going to turn to the Son one day, very soon, I believe, and say, go get my children. And we will surely not precede those who have already died, but we will all be glorified in an instant at the last trump of God. And I don't go, listen, you know me. If you know me at all, you know that I don't go around saying, God spoke to me. And he, he told me to tell you, um, if, if you know me, I'm just not giving over to saying those kind of things. Um, and I say that in one sense, that's exactly what I do every week is in the sermon. But I, I do it, when I do it in the sermon, I'm doing it from God's established word, right? I'm not telling you what I heard, um, you know. So, but but here's, what I wanna, here's what I wanna tell you as we, as we close this morning. 
I had a moment, it's been a couple of weeks ago, and, I, and it's still so vivid to me, and I, I have wrestled with this, t- just telling anybody other than my wife, um, and, it, and I just felt compelled to share this with you this morning. It's still so vivid, and the Spirit was so clear to my heart and mind, and you're going to love this because you know me. Um, I was tooling down the road, and I was listening to Petra, because that's what I do. Um, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and it was, this, it was one of my favorite Petra songs. We are strangers. We are aliens. We are not of this world. I love that song. And as I was driving down the road, I was just flooded with tears. I was just overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit, and I had to pull over. <laughs> you ever have one of those moments where it's just like, I can't, if I keep driving, I'm going to die. And I'll be with Jesus, but I'm going to pull over. And, and I was just overwhelmed to the point of tears. And, and it was like the Lord said, not long now. And I'm going to recall my ambassadors. And then the end will come and hell will be unleashed. Not long now. Folks, I believe time is short. And like Jesus, we must be about the Father's business. All the pieces of the enemy's puzzle are coming together and we're seeing it more and more clearly all around the world, even at this very hour. Stay focused on the mission. Stay focused on the mission. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Jesus, we bow before you this morning and we acknowledge our insufficiency. And yet you have called us to participate with you in the building of your kingdom, to be ambassadors in a foreign land that is not our home. Lord, we want to represent you accurately. We want to represent you fully. We want to make you known in the hopes that there be others who are here who might, uh, they might jump out of the, the opposition team and come over and receive the grace and knowledge of God. Lord, Help us to be found faithful in your sight in these days. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Blished his expectations for those who would be his ambassadors in the earth. We are called to be salt and light in the world. We are called to embody the Beatitudes. And none of this is at all possible without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So let's be faithful and accurate representatives of the kingdom until the very minute that Jesus calls us to meet him in the air. And until that trumpet sounds, we must be about the gospel. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to say, will you go? And you say, send me. Let's try it. Will you go? Send me. All right. Now, we're going to do it three times. I had to count. I can't. There are three. There we go. Three times. Okay. You ready? Will you go? Will you go? Will you go? Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.